everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Spotlight, the Climate Link-Up podcast. My name is Lilia and today I'm here with Zach Books. He is a PhD student at Bournemouth University and he's also the co-founder of an NGO called North Bali Reef Conservation. And he does a lot of really interesting work over in Indonesia, which we'll talk about shortly. And recently he's become one of our global ambassadors here at Climate Link-Up. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Lilia. Nice to be with you today. Very nice to have you here. Could you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course, yes. Um, my name is Zach Bokes, uh, as you kindly introduced me. Uh, I am a PhD student at Bournemouth University, and I'm currently researching about coral reef conservation uh, for my PhD. I'm also the co-founder of North Bali Reef Conservation, which is an NGO aiming to restore coral reefs and conserve livelihoods in North Bali, more specifically the livelihoods that have been um, damaged by coral reef degradation. Uh, as well as that, I'm a, pleased to say that I'm a Climate Link-Up ambassador, which I've just started recently in the last few months, and I'm really excited to be getting involved with this, this great climate action work. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. And could you, first of all, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got involved with coral reef preservation in Bali? Sure, sure. Um, so how did I get involved with coral reef conservation in Bali? So I've been visiting Bali for some time um, since, since, I was, since I was young, mostly just for the same reason that most people go to islands such as Bali, uh, which is for tourism. Uh, more specifically surf tourism for me um, and I've been visiting for some time um, visiting a lot of the popular surfing areas around the island and not so much visiting areas that um, are more famous for coral reefs and for uh, the marine biodiversity there. Uh, however on one trip I made in 2016 uh, I visited a relatively underprivileged a uh, village in the north of Bali, a fishing village called Tianya. And in this fishing village, I met uh, fishermen and spoke with different members of the fishing community there who uh, basically told me that their reef over the last, well, for as long as they can remember, really, for over the last few decades had been destroyed. The coral reef outside where they lived mm -hmm. and how they remember as a child had been destroyed. Um, multiple reasons, uh, climate change, um, unsustainable destructive fishing practices, uh, boat anchoring, multiple different reasons. Um, and basically they told me that um, their livelihoods are now quite significantly affected by the damage to the coral reefs because of course as fishermen, they're relying quite heavily on uh, the coral reefs. And um, this is kind of how the idea got started. There was one fisherman uh, that I met in particular, his name was Ketut um, and Ketut had a very long and heartfelt conversation with me about, about this and how um, it's not only going to affect his generation, but even more the generation below him. And um, basically that's how the idea for North Bali Reef Conservation was born, um, is to try, and to try to support the reefs, support the biodiversity that we know that they can provide um, to support the generations um, that, that need these reefs to live. And could you tell me a little bit about how you went from sort of identifying that there is a problem to figuring out what you uh, and your uh, NGO could do to try to um, to fix some of those problems or to uh, reverse some of that negative uh, development? Yeah, so the first um, 
aim of our organization was to try and remove the threats to to the coral reef, um, remove the threats that previously degraded the reefs. Um, and as I mentioned, one of the main threats was unsustainable fishing. Um, so un unsustainable fishing is quite a broad term. Yeah. It can incorporate uh, quite a lot of things from uh, boat anchoring through to trawling through to um, unsustainable methods like using cyanide or dynamite. Mm. I'm not saying necessarily everything happened here. And to be honest, I don't think we'll ever know exactly what was used in the past. But uh, one thing we knew was that unsustainable fishing methods had been used. And that was one of the reasons that the, um, the corals previously got destroyed. So when we first started the organization in 2017, which was um, about four and a half years ago now, the yeah. community uh, were already aware of the issues and had already started to stop. So we basically just continued this work to, uh, to educate and convince the local community that sustainable fishing is important not only for them to be able to sustain a livelihood in fishing but also for their for their children and for their children's children so it started like so it started like this um and then yeah we we not only try to remove the threats to uh, the coral reefs but we also try to actively conserve the coral reefs and restore the coral reefs i should say so um we didn't really know how exactly to do this um and when I first started North Bali Reef Conservation, I was towards the end of my undergraduate degree in environmental science, but I was definitely by no means an expert in marine conservation and neither were the community that I was working with. Um, so it took a bit of research, it took a bit of um, guesswork and also just trying to get as many, get as much advice as we could from experts who were working in the field, specifically in Bali. Um, so we went around the island and tried to visit as many projects as possible to try and get inspiration on, on what we could do to try and conserve our reefs. Um, and one of the, and by, by and large, one of the main uh, tools used to conserve coral reefs were artificial reefs. Um, so basically we started to do this. We started to work with our local fishermen uh, to build artificial reefs. And the artificial reefs that we're building are made from calcium, cement and sand and but they're basically designed with the aim of bringing back life to the area so providing as as, as best ha habitat as possible for the marine species mostly fish but also corals and other benthic species as well so yeah we um, started to build and deploy artificial reefs uh, and we put them in the areas where reefs have previously been destroyed Amazing. um yeah we we have a, other different conservation projects as well but yeah they're, they're some of the main things that we've been doing as an as an NGO. And uh, these artificial reefs is that something that's done uh, in other places in Indonesia or in other countries around the world? Yes it is it's becoming more and more popular as a method of habitat restoration um, mostly because research has shown that it, it really does work if it's done properly. Um, there's multiple reasons why it, it can't work uh, or it, it might not work but if it's as I said if it's done correctly and um, they're well designed well located then projects really can be successful in bringing life back to an area and yeah we, we're pleased to see that we've really seen life come back to our area um, so before really we yeah it's uh, uh, really hopeful to see that some of these trends can be reversed 
Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, it's been helpful for me to, to see it with my own eyes as well. Yeah, it's great to hear about. I can't imagine <laughs> seeing it. it must be amazing. And yeah. uh, as far as I understand, your PhD research is also very closely tied in with um, your, the work that you've done in, in Bali. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how those two relate to each other? Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, I'm currently doing my PhD. I mean, I've just finished with the first year of my PhD with Bournemouth University, which is also part funded by Earthwatch, which is a citizen science research program in based in America, but doing research across the planet. Oh, sorry. And um, basically the the aim of my research is to evaluate the benefits of artificial reefs, not only to the community, not only to the local ecosystem, but also to the community. So uh, one of the ways we're doing this is to research how mobile and benthic, so how moving and moving species and also species that are attached to the, um, the seabed or to the artificial reefs benefit from the coral reef restoration work that we're doing. Um, and as I mentioned previously, I'm really pleased to see with my own eyes that the project is working, but it's great to get data to Get, get data on this and collect um, real hard, solid evidence that the, the artificial reefs are working. Um, for example, if we're looking at mobile species, mostly fish, we've seen that um, compared to the area where we haven't built any artificial reefs, basically it's just a flat sand bed. The coral reefs previously got degraded, so there's very little life there. And um, if we compare that area to the area where we're building artificial reefs, the research has shown that there's now nine to 10 times higher biodiversity than there was um, before we started. So yeah, we are pleased to see that it's working and also to get them, get the hard evidence to suggest the same thing. That's really amazing. And as far as I understand, your NGO has worked quite closely with the local population as well. Could you elaborate a little bit about that process and what it was like getting the local population involved, what their role is currently in the project and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to say that we're a grassroots NGO that work with the international community to support the local community. I don't like to say that we're a internationally run NGO because most of the hard work done by my organization is the, the great hard work of the local community, especially the fishers. Um, and from the start, it's been absolutely essential that we've involved the community in every everything that we've done. Um, the co-founder of our organization, Ketut, is a local uh, coming local coming from a fisher family. So uh, it's been it's been essential for us to get them on board with the project. And this was to some extent difficult at the start. Um, one thing that I found interesting was that it was quite easy to convince local the, the local young population to get on board with our project. However, convincing older older generation, perhaps people over the age of 30 or 40, this was quite difficult. Um, I guess because it's a more um, closed-minded or closed mindset, uh, especially fishers. So um, when we were first starting, this was this was difficult because inevitably there's going to be disagreements and um, different people with different opinions. So one way we one way we came um, found a solution to this was to basically try and 
involve and invite as many people as we wanted to the program we didn't want it to be a exclusive a exclusive conservation program where you could only join if you were doing this or this we wanted to make it open for any member of the fisher community to join so basically it was open for anyone that was involved interested in, in being involved in conservation could join us they didn't have to have any background it was just um this is a conservation program please please come and join us if you're interested everyone that everyone that joined got a free conservation uh, t-shirt with a <laughs> with a personalized name on it which oh. i think which i think persuaded quite a lot of them to join <laughs> yeah, <I guess>. um <laughs> and it started with just a handful um and now since 2017 uh, several years on we've now got a large member large member of the local fisher population on board with the project and um yeah it's really great to have have everyone involved and all of our achievements have yeah haven't have, wouldn't have been possible without without their support wow yeah and do you provide any training for for your volunteers and how is it mm. difficult to learn how to to help with uh, the conservation yeah so so i haven't really gone into too much detail about this but alongside this we are we have a volunteering program so north bali reef conservation itself is a non-profit volunteering program and we're so grateful to have the support of international volunteers who come and visit us all year round this has been affected quite recently by covid but um it's starting fingers crossed to return back to normal and yeah volunteers that come to visit our program help with multiple different activities one of the main ones being um deploy building and deployment of artificial reefs it's not too difficult to build the artificial reefs but they have to be built and designed with a pro providing habitats in mind so um we encourage volunteers to follow the couple of simple rules to build artificial reefs in the best way possible um and yes we do provide training on that um once once the artificial reefs are built um they are left to dry it usually takes between three days to a week for the structures for the structures to dry depending on the weather and how big the structures are and then the structures which are very heavy are carried out to to our boat and then they're taken to a surveyed area where we want to deploy the artificial reefs they're lowered down from the boat and then the next day usually our volunteers alongside our local team will scuba dive and arrange the structures underwater so basically they have to be arranged underwater with uh, as much protective space as possible so that they can uh, effectively look the way I like to describe it is effectively look like a city underwater right. so that it's as attractive as possible for fish to visit the area and to colonize the area um, and that's the sort of training that we give our volunteers. Oh, I see uh, and um, I read a little bit on your website and I read that you also do a range of other types of projects uh, for instance I saw something about turtles could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah of course so um our turtle conservation program is something that we started pretty much from the start and it was one of the things I really wanted to focus on as a program because turtle populations are declining globally and they're such an amazing uh, group of group of animals and I think it's really important to protect them um, it's no surprise that they are declining in in our area because the turtles that we work with olive ridley is the species um, lay their eggs along the three kilometer beach in North Bali and oh, sorry, the three kilometer beach in Tianyar in our village. Um, however, unfortunately, the nests are do face threats 
from boats parking on the beaches, from dogs, from local people. So um, basically what happens is the nests, rather than getting taken by local people, get brought to a conservation area, um, which is managed by us. The, the eggs are placed back into the sand and um, patrolled and surveyed every day to make sure uh, not only they're safe, but if they're starting to hatch. Um, they usually take give or take 50 days to hatch, um, which is quite interesting because it's almost, almost exactly 50 days. Um, so we know roughly when they're going to hatch and when they do um we ensure that all of the newly born hatchlings um get taken get released uh, to the sea so basically they have to walk their way down from the nests to the sea and once we've done that that's our work done and the hatchlings are uh on their own amazing and yeah and i think this uh, improves their chances of surviving by quite a lot yes yeah, so i believe from from the literature i've read that uh, from 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 a hatch from being from hatching sorry to adulthood turtles only have a one in 1000 chance of survival to adulthood um by doing this i know for certain that we're greatly in increasing that chance because one of the greatest risks to the turtles are getting taken when they just hatch or taken as as eggs as well so um we know for certain that they're much more likely to re uh, reach maturity, having already been safely released to the sea. Oh, that's amazing. And I also read that you, uh, your organization is concerned with plastic and avoiding uh, plastic pollution. Can you tell me about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Indonesia itself is a huge plastic polluter. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's the second largest plastic polluter in the world, um, second to China. So um, there's a big issue across the whole of the nation because, well, partly down to lack of education, um, but also because lack of because of lack of infrastructure, mostly lack of infrastructure supported and provided by the, uh, by the government. Uh, and where we live in Tianyar in North Bali, the, um, this issue is evident more than ever because local people get very little to no education about plastic. And there is also no um, infrastructure to allow local people to recycle or to deal with their waste in any sustainable way. So basically local people are dispose of their waste, mostly plastic by burning it or digging it in a hole somewhere or just dumping it somewhere. Quite often that makes it waste, makes its way to the sea. So none of those are, um, particularly sustainable methods of dealing with plastic. Um, so we had the idea back in 2018 to uh, create a plastic recycling centre, which is going to be run by the local community, run and designed, I should say, by the local community. Um, and how it works is we have multiple different plastic collection points across the village, including in local schools, um, which seems to be a great way because the local children are really interested and passionate about helping with these projects. So this gets bought from their homes, collected and bought to our recycling centre. And basically it get, the plastic that we can recycle gets turned into useful community materials such as bricks, tiles and beams. Um, materials like this which are useful within the community and uh, have great practical um, purposes as well. Uh, it's not just about what we can create from the plastic but for me one of the biggest aims of this project is education. Um, 
and we're working with the community every day, uh, especially local children, to educate them about plastic. Um, so not only is it having a practical application too, but supporting supporting education about this really important issue within Indonesia. Amazing. Hmm. Um, and I was also wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what uh, your aspirations for this organization going forward are. Uh, where do you see this work going in the future? Hmm. Yeah, so I definitely have plans to expand the organization and the work we're doing. It's been really inspiring to see not only how the wildlife has come back to the area, but also how the community has responded so well to the project. Um, as a program in Tianyar, the village we're working in, the main aim is to restore the uh, fully restore the area that we're working in. Um, which so far I believe we're about halfway in terms of connecting two healthy reefs together. So once we've done that, uh, my aim would be to create more conservation programs, conservation projects that are doing the similar thing across perhaps Bali or across Indonesia as a nation. Um, I know for a fact that there's many uh, locally, local sites that also need conservation. Um, and I hope that we can inspire and uh, encourage more environmental environmentally passionate people to do similar projects around the world thank you all very much for listening and Zach thank you so much for being here it's been great having you as a guest for our first podcast yeah thank you it's been it's been great to be on the first climate link up podcast and I'm looking forward to doing more yeah, um, Zach will likely be hosting some of these podcasts in the future, so you can all look out for that. Uh, and if you find his work interesting and want to read more, you can have a look at the links that we put in the description box below, where you can find his website and a blog that he recently wrote for Climate Link Up, which you can find in our newsroom, uh, where you can see some pictures as well of the work that he's done. Mm -hmm.